Just to let you know, right from the outset, we're going to be diving straight into today's message. There's no warm-up. There's no time for a warm-up. There's no need for a nice little funny, cute story to get your attention. So for those of you who have been journeying with us and to catch up anybody else, what we as a church have been doing is going through the book of Exodus. And up till now, we've been going through all the drama and the action of the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus. And even if you haven't been with us, you know the story. You know the story about the Israelites in Egypt, 400 years of slavery, God coming in, confronting Egypt with these plagues, releasing God's people from Egypt, releasing them powerfully through the sea into the wilderness. But the action continued because then they got thirsty, God provided water miraculously. They got hungry, God provided provided water miraculously. This, this group of wandering immigrants in the desert were attacked by a foreign nation and God came to their aid and they won. And after all of that action and drama, we got to last week, Exodus chapter 19, and it was as if somebody pulled up the handbrake. Because suddenly they're at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and after all of this drama, they're going to be staying there for pretty much a full calendar year. And where we're going to from there, Exodus 19, it was the hinge point between all the action and the drama and Exodus 20 onwards. And if you've read your Bible before, especially one of those, read your Bible in the year plans, you get to Exodus chapter 20, and I know it's your favorite part of the Bible. Because we get to 613 laws. And I know that you take a day per law to just meditate on those laws and enjoy them. And you don't skip ahead to Psalms and you don't skip ahead to the Gospels or something you're more familiar with. Yeah, can you hear the irony in my voice and the sarcasm there? But anyway, what we see in Exodus chapter 20 is the first 10 of those 613 laws. These 10 laws we know as the 10 commandments. Exodus 34 actually calls these laws the 10 words, the 10 words of God. These are the first 10. These are the big 10. These are the 10 that we generally think of when we think about laws from the Old Testament. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on those 10 laws, those 10 commandments, those 10 words. And then for the next six months, we're going to go through the rest of the 613 laws. Because that's how you grow a church, right? Everyone gets so excited about those. No, we're not going to do that. But we are going to focus on these. And there's a very important reason why we are going to focus on these first 10. First of all, they come in first for good reason. These laws and the heart of these laws underpin the entire rest of the law code that Israel was to abide by. And not only were they, do these laws underpin the rest of those 613 laws, but despite some of those strange laws, which we'll get to in a second, the laws of the Ten Commandments all make it into the New Testament as well. And Jesus kind of corrects some of our understanding around these laws. And so for that reason, the fact that they're kind of the heart and the soul of all the laws of Israel as well as the heart of the soul of what it means to follow Jesus and what it looks like practically, 
for that reason, we're going to focus on these laws. So what we're going to do here is uh, we're going to dive in. But before I do that, I, I want to point out something, and especially for those of you who might have missed this, I want to point out the order of the story. That God's salvation came first, the laws came second. In other words, God didn't say, if you obey my laws, then I will save you. God had compassion on his people who were, who were in slavery, but at the same time, they were serving foreign gods, the gods of the Egyptians. And so we know that they were not worshipers of God, and yet God in his mercy saved them. And only after salvation does he say, here now is how you live. And it is not this legalistic thing that if you follow these laws, we don't get clapped around the ear by God. Rather, last week we heard about what it means to be God's treasured possession. That God wanted Israel and He wants us as His people not to be a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests. And that every single one of us are invited into God's presence. We don't have to go through anyone. We can go straight to God in Jesus Christ. But part of what it means to be a kingdom of priests is to be shaped into the kind of people that represent God well. And so that's the heart of the laws. Salvation first. Here is how you live second. The second thing that I want to say about this is if you ever have read through these laws, the reason why you found them strange and the reason why you probably skipped on is because of the kinds of laws that we read and we don't know what to do with them. For example, every single one of us is breaking the law that you can't wear more than one kind of cloth. What's up with that? What do we do with that? And as far as I can see, there's not a single guy in the room who has not shaved his sideburns. And I'm not going to mention any names, Craig, but we do have some guys here with tattoos. So what do we do with that guy? And I've got a big problem with some of these laws because I love chorizo and bacon and prawns. Now, not only do we as Christians find some of these laws strange and we simply don't know what to do with them, but atheists and cynics like to throw these laws in our faces and kind of the heart of that is, look, Christians, you pick and choose which parts of the Bible you do listen to and which parts of the Bible you don't listen to. So don't tell me that you're people of the Bible. And what do we do when it comes to that? Now, I don't have time to go through this, but when we were doing a series last year called Glad You Asked, where the series was pretty much framed by questions that you brought to us. We also made some midweek videos that we didn't do here from the platform. And one of the videos, it is quite a long one, is on exactly this question. As Christians, what do we do with those strange Old Testament laws? And I want to highly, highly, highly recommend that at some point in the near future, so you don't forget, you go and watch this video because it goes into a level of detail that we won't be able to do here today. 
And it pretty much answers that question because you need to know how to think about those things. But also when someone comes and shoves these questions in your face, you need to know how to lovingly and gently respond as opposed to simply stick your head in the sand and just pretend that those laws don't exist. And so that link is going to be available on our church online. It will be available on our YouTube description. It will be available on our app. And so we just want to make sure that you can access that link very easily. So let's dive in. Uh, As you've already heard, today we're going to be moving at kind of 140 on the highway today. Uh, Today is also going to be very intense. And dare I say, potentially or probably very convicting. Now, as Christians, we love those words. We love those verses. We love those sermons that tell us how awesome we are and our breakthroughs around the corner, but we don't really line up for the sermons that potentially are going to make us feel uncomfortable. Today's one will. But if we truly want to be shaped into the kinds of people God wants us to be, I want to suggest to you that you enter that place of discomfort. And that you invite not my conviction, but the conviction of God. And see what he says to you and see how he encourages you and how we can respond. And so let's go. Exodus chapter 20, diving into the 10 words, the 10 commandments from verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, that isn't the first commandment, but that kind of sets us up. Why is God reminding them again about who He is before He gets into the laws? Remember, these Israelites had spent 400 years not knowing who this God is, wondering if this is the one true God. And God is saying, just remember, remember back to a few months ago when I defeated those foreign gods. When I confronted Pharaoh, when I confronted evil, when I released you from slavery, when I brought you into freedom, I made you my treasured possession. So if you're going to get bogged down by these laws that I'm about to give you, remember who I am. Remember the heart of who I am. Otherwise, we're going to get stuck into this legalistic mindset as we get into these commandments. So let's start with the actual first commandment, which we find in verse 3, where God says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Once again, you might be tempted to keep some of these other gods with you. You might be tempted to kind of worship me and we're divided. Is Yahweh God or these other gods God? And the way he talks about this is kind of like if you had a wife and you're like, listen, wife, I'm going to put you first, but I'm going to have a whole lot of girlfriends on the side as well. And God says, no, that's not how this works. You shall have no other gods before me. And there's a very important reason why this commandment comes first. Many theologians have commented on this saying, if all we had was this commandment, we should be able to live a life pleasing to God. If we were to love God first above all things, 
If we were to put God first above all things, St. Augustine, the saint from the fourth century, he famously said, love God and do whatever you want. And what he meant by that is if we truly love God, if we truly put Him first, we will desire to follow Him. We might need to close these side doors here, guys. We, might, we will choose to follow Him. We will choose to love Him. We will choose to hear His words. We will choose to treasure Him. Love God, do whatever you want. But because Moses and God knows our hearts, that if we get given like that kind of open checkbook, we might not necessarily always have the wisdom to do what he's calling us to do. And so if we think about the rest of these laws, kind of like when you go to a bowling alley, when my kids were younger, we had to put up the sides just to provide a bit of a boundary for them so they knew what it meant and eventually they could put that boundary down. But we need the laws that are going to follow. So you might say, well, Stephen, you know what? I'm good on this one because I don't worship any other gods. When I do worship a God, it's this God. So let me ask you a question because when Jesus comes on the scene, he shows us that there's a real heart behind every one of these laws. So what's the heart of this law? Do you put God first before all other firsts? And do you love God first before all other loves? Stephen, I, I don't know if I do. I really try and follow God, but I've got a life. I've got bills to pay. You know, what's the difference between having my concerns kind of shared around the various concerns of life and having God first? Well, there's many ways we can think about this, but one of them is to think through the, the grid of our time, our treasures, and our talents. If someone had to audit your life, if someone had to investigate your life, if someone had to observe your life for six months, when it came to your time, would there be any evidence that God is first in your life? And when it came to your treasures and the things you value and the things you own and your income that you earn, is there any evidence that God is first in your life? And when it comes to your talents, the way God has made you, the skills God has given you, not to serve your own kingdom, but to serve His kingdom, is there any evidence that I'm giving my talents to God? Now, when I say this, please don't think exclusively through the lens of church and time given to church and treasures given to church and talents given to church. And while it definitely includes that, if we are putting God first in all things, we are gonna see the way we use our time during the course of the week, the way we steward our treasures during the course of the week, the way we budget, the way we make decisions, the way we decide what we're gonna do with our energies and our talents. There's gonna be evidence of God being first in our lives. And I know off the bat already, this sounds extremely convicting. I want to flip some of these commandments and show you kind of the plus side of these commandments. What does God want for us? Not from us. What He wants for us is the following. He knows 
that in such an uncertain world where we don't know what is true, we don't know what is reality, and the whole world seems to turn on its head every five years. At the moment, it seems like every five minutes we're dealing with a brand new culture around us. How do I know what is true? What can I rely on? How do I have a North Star and a foundation in my life? And God knows that when He is our firm foundation, when He is our North Star, when we look to Him before we look to anything else, when He has our heart and our attention before all things, He knows that even if the world doesn't make sense, something about being with God does make sense and gives us the ability to live well in this world. So that's the first commandment. The second one is this, very similar. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. So you might say, okay, Stephen, commandment number one. No, I don't always put God first and I don't always love God first. But this one I'm good with because when I go home, There's no idols, there's no Buddhas, there's no other gods in my home. And so I'm okay with this. Well, look, for these people, there was a very real temptation to follow other gods, a temptation that stayed with Israel for the centuries that followed. When Jesus came onto the scene, many of the people who came to know him were coming from pagan religions where there were idols and foreign gods and they had to leave these behind. But the whole idea of what an idol is gets expanded in the New Testament, showing up the real heart of idolatry. Listen to this verse, Colossians 3 verses 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Stephen, are you saying lust is idolatry? I'm not saying that. The Bible's saying that. Are you saying if I look at porn, if I, if I fantasize about someone who is not my spouse, are you saying that I'm guilty, as guilty as if someone was bowing down to a dead stone idol? And the answer is yes. Are you saying when I'm greedy that I'm guilty of idolatry? Well, I think it's crystal clear that the answer is yes. Timothy Keller wrote a great book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods. It is in our library, which is, if you don't know, it's through our foyer over there and you can get it there. Otherwise, just find it online, a fantastic book. Timothy Keller, Counterfeit Gods. But he defines idolatry in the following way. He says, what is an idol? He says, it is anything that absorbs your heart." and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And that's why sex and money and power and stuff and people and celebrities and a way of life can become an idol to us because they've captured our hearts. 
We dream about them more than imagining the purity and the holiness and the wonder of who God is and His kingdom. We fret about them. And of course we fret about them, but to the point where they distract us from our relationship with God. And when we're in need and when we're in our place of brokenness, this is at the heart of all sin and all addictions. Instead of coming to God, I go to my sexual addiction. I go to my shopping addiction. I go to my TV addiction. I go to my YouTube addiction to make me feel a little bit better about myself. So as convicting as that might be, let me tell you the flip side, what God wants for you, not from you. And what He wants for you is this, the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And the only one who can fill an eternal void is an eternal being. And when we try and fill an eternal void in our lives with temporal things, things of this world, Jesus knows they will never satisfy They will always lead us to deeper and deeper levels of addiction, deeper and deeper levels of slavery and dissatisfaction. And we will believe the lie that if I had more of these things, then I will be happy. And then I do get more of these things and I'm still not happy. And so the cycle goes on and on and on. And Jesus knows the only one who can give you complete joy is me. And this is something we need to be absolutely convinced of if we are ever to break free of idolatry in our lives. Verse three, well, sorry, commandment number three, word number three, verse seven says this, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. On that same series, glad you asked, we did a video on this as well. So just click around and you'll find it because I'm just going to summarize really what's going on there. What we've done is we've said, oh, I don't do that because what that law is about is people who take God's name and uses it in the place of a swear word. And so people in the movies do that. Maybe people in my family or the workplace do that, but I don't do that so I can move on. I'm sorry to tell you, while this law definitely includes that idea, when these laws were given three and a half thousand years ago, they weren't thinking about what words may or may not make it into movies three and a half thousand years later. So what's at the heart of this commandment? Well, maybe you've heard this in a different version and similar to what the King James says and the English Standard Version says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know, when we look at this word to take, it means to take up, to carry, to bear. In other words, you shall not take up the Lord your God's name in vain. You shall not bear his name in vain. Stephen, that's not helpful because what does it mean to take his name in vain? It means to treat it lightly. In other words, at the heart of this command is, Do not treat God's name lightly and do not carry His name lightly. Now, of course, when we take a swear word out and we put God's name in there, we are treating His name lightly. 
But the bigger picture here is we walk around bearing the name of Jesus. We call ourselves Christians. And we say to ourselves, I don't take the Lord's name in vain because I don't do that swear word thing. But so often the way we live our lives, if someone had to watch us, they would say, it doesn't really look like you're applying due honor and glory to the name of God by the way you carry His name. So what does God want for us here? What is the flip side of this verse? He's saying, represent me well. Bear my name well in word and in deed. Let someone who looks at your life bring glory to my name because of you. That's at the heart of this commandment. And for those of us who are parents, isn't that exactly what we want from our kids? When my kids grow up and when they go out into this world, I want them to represent the Pullman name well. And what does that mean? It means they're going to bear the name well. They're going to live according to the way that I've raised them. That when people look at them and their name and they say, hey, aren't you the son of Stephen Pullman? That people see that as a good thing and not a bad thing. And so that's what we're being invited into here. Word number three, let's move to word number four. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your manservant or your maidservants, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now once again, I'm going to be brief here. The book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, and in fact the whole of the Old Testament, makes the Sabbath thing quite a big deal. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to spend a bit more time around this because I believe there's a lot of confusion around the Sabbath and all that that means. But in just a few minutes, what can we say about this command? Well, here is the heart of this command here. Who or what do you ultimately worship, trust, and enjoy? Who or what do you ultimately worship, trust, or enjoy? God repeatedly wants to set aside the Sabbath as a day unto Himself. A day where He alone is the focus of our hearts. And if you are anything like me, days one to six, I feel my heart wandering. And I feel the things of the world getting its teeth into my heart. And I feel that my concerns are getting out of control and my loves are getting out of control. And so God wants to face us or force us to make a decision. Who are you going to put first? And by having a Sabbath every single week, we are reorientating our heart and our affections onto the God who is worthy of our worship. And we get to see Him and glimpse Him and our hearts grow in love with Him. But it also has to do with our trusts. I think the best equivalent here is, for those of you who were here a few weeks ago, the whole idea of the manna. 
Do you remember the story of the manna? The Israelites were hungry, so God says, I'm gonna provide for you food every single day. And there's only gonna be enough for you every single day. And so every single day, go and take what you need for that day, except on day six, where you're gonna take up what you need for the day after. And then on the day after, you're gonna cease from working. And you're gonna trust that what I have given you is enough. So how do we apply that to our own lives? We are so inclined to trust the work of our hands and that I'm defined what I can do and that I'm defined by my performance or my lack of performance. And so I'm defined by my failures and I begin to ultimately trust what I can do. And so what we do is instead of giving a day to the Lord where I cease from producing work and I trust God that God, you have provided enough for me and I'm gonna rest and I'm not gonna do anything on this day. The point is not to nap. The point is to remind you whether or not you have a nap is, not, is beside the point. It's to remind you where your place of trust ultimately lies. But it's also about what do I ultimately enjoy? God is so good to give us so many good things that we can enjoy. And God's never against us enjoying the good gifts that He gives us. That's why ad nauseum, I'm always talking about some of the food that I enjoy up here and the fishing that I enjoy up here and the beach and the mountains. Those are good gifts from God. And so we have our hobbies and we have our lions and we have the things that we enjoy, but we need to remind ourselves that my ultimate joy is not to be in those things. My ultimate joy is to be in Him. And so set into our weekly schedule, a schedule that somehow approximates the schedule of God, we are to forcibly remind ourselves, my joy is not in these things. Yes, they're good things, but my ultimate joy is in God. That video that you played last week, Jesus didn't just say, come to church. He said, follow me. And so what it means to be a follower of God is to, amongst many other things, to enjoy Him most above all other things. Now we're gonna get into Commandment number five here, but I just kind of want to show you some of the big picture here. The first four commands are God-facing, and the second set of commands are people-facing. Think about when Jesus was asked the question, what are the two greatest commandments? And he quotes Deuteronomy, but just think about the poetic vision here. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. If we are truly going to be God's representatives and His priests, if we are truly going to be shaped into the kinds of people that God wants us to be, yes, we're going to have a vital, vertical, empowered relationship with God. And it has to translate into how we love others and how we treat others. And so the next six commandments are how we think about our neighbors how we think about the community around us. 
So let's look at the first of those, which is commandment number five, which is this. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. So the first group of people God wants us to honour and love as an expression of the love that we have for Him are our parents. Now, I wish we had more teenagers here this morning because I know that this can get tricky. And just by the way, I know that this can get tricky both ways. And I know that relationships can get really strained and it can be very complicated. Exactly how do I do this, God? Maybe some of you are saying, well, duh, I don't even understand why this is a commandment. Of course, parents should honor, sorry, kids should honor their parents. Well, remember, this is coming in the story of Israel. And if you know anything about what's happened in families in the book of Genesis and the first part of Exodus, you will know that in almost every single story, there were kids who did not honor their parents. And things got very messy very quickly. Just for example, I know that you think your family's a mess. Well, let's think about the first family in the Bible, Adam and Eve. I mean, they didn't only go to church every single week of the year. They walked with God. And yet their one son killed his brother. We see the same happening with Abraham and Noah and the same struggle. So here's what God wants for us. God wants our families to be a place where faith is modeled and faith is passed on and faith and honor and love is reciprocated both ways. Because God knows when we get that right, something happens in our families. Something is transferred, something is lived out, something is evidence and something also happens in our communities when we get this right, because God cares deeply about our communities. Moving on to commandment number six. You shall not murder. Okay, Stephen, up to now, man, (laughs) I don't know what to do. Just stick my head in my hands because I'm not living up to any of these. But last I checked, I haven't killed anyone the last week, so I think I'm good on this one. And just by the way, if you have killed anyone this week, we'll pray for you afterwards, but uh, let's move on. Jesus comes along and he points to this commandment. And he says, you know, I know that you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but here's what I'd say. He says, here's the heart behind the commandment. Matthew 5, 22. Anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to, to judgments. See, what Jesus is doing is he brings us to the heart behind this commandment. And he says it starts quite literally in the heart. And so maybe there's no literal blood on your hands. But if you without cause have been losing your temper at work, losing your temper with your family members, losing your cool, flicking our politicians, flicking our taxi drivers, flicking whoever happens to bug you on the day. You're guilty of this. See, Jesus knows that when that anger takes root and it becomes bitterness, it has the power to tear families apart, to tear churches apart, 
and sometimes even the power to end the life of somebody. Stephen, does that mean I can't ever get angry? Well, the Bible never says you're never allowed to get angry. It says we're to be slow in getting angry. It also says in your anger do not sin. If we're angry, there are wise biblical ways to deal with that and to process that. Is it me? Is it you? Is it something else? How do I bring that to God? How does this kind of get dissolved up in my heart? But what he is talking about here is when that gets inflamed and out of control. And the next commandment is very similar with a very similar way that Jesus gets to the heart of it. Commandment number seven, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery in the same way Jesus gets to the heart of it. And he says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Stephen, are you telling me that when I look at porn, like nobody gets hurt by that? Well, first and foremost, that shows me you know nothing about how the porn industry works. Secondly, Jesus shows us just how dangerous it is for these things to take root in our hearts. At the minute I fantasize about someone who is not my spouse, and let's not leave this in the realm of the dudes here, because this can happen in the realm of the ladies, and maybe it's not always sexual, but it's like, oh, if only my husband was more like that guy. So is God just wanting to us to kill our little private fun here? Well, how would we flip this commandment? What does God want for us? For those of us who are unmarried, he's saying, keep yourself pure so that you can give all your love to the one that God is going to give you. Pure in heart, pure in mind, pure in deed. And when it comes to those who are married, the heart of this command is enjoy your wife, enjoy your husband above all things. And when you have a need, go to them as God's gift to you. You see, when we are able to enjoy our spouses, it is the best gift to one another. It is the best gift to our kids. And therefore, it's the best gift to the transfer of faith. It is the best gift to our communities and even to our nations if we can get this right. That's what God wants for us. Number eight, I know we're moving so fast here. Verse 15 says, You shall not steal. Once again, God is protecting our communities and God is protecting our Christian witness. Because what does it do to our Christian witness when I'm needing to steal in order to survive? So just to put this one into perspective, because I know you're sitting here saying, well, I don't do that. What has stealing done to our nation? Drip the heart of our nation, out of our nation. Now, don't just think about the bazillions that get stolen by some of these big plants. Cable theft. Yeah, Stephen, you're so right. Stealing has ripped the heart out of our nation. Except we do it too. We are dishonest and we steal in business. 
we are dishonest and we steal when we hide things from our families and our spouses. When we're dishonest and we're intentionally stealing on our tax returns, we are guilty of exactly the same thing that we've been pointing at all these other people for. God wants us to be content with what we've got, to trust Him, but more on that in a second. Commandment number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, just notice that the context is false testimony. I know that I've ranted about this before, but I'm gonna rant about it again because it is such a danger to us. I'm not against social media but it is such a crazy beast. We need to have such wisdom so we know how to live with it. But every time we click and share fake news, we are guilty of this. Every time we click and share conspiracy, maybe you are somewhat convinced that it may be true. But if there's any doubt that maybe this is not true, we're guilty of this. Guys, in a world where no one knows what is true, we can't trust the news anymore. So how do we know what is true? We, of all people, need to be so committed to what is true. And if we're not absolutely certain it is true, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to not scream your opinion in bold and caps and underlined on social media. But not only do we do this in social media, but you do this in our relationships. Every time we're hurt by someone, every time we're angry with someone, oh, it's so easy just to exaggerate the story. It's so easy to exaggerate the blame. It's so easy to tell a story in such a way that I absolve myself and make them look bad. When we do that, we're giving false testimony. Or when I know I'm guilty. And instead of me taking up responsibility and repenting and doing what I can, oh, it's his fault, it's their fault, it's the church's fault, it's my neighbor's fault, it's my parents' fault, it's my kids' fault. We are giving false testimony about people. Once again, this tears our communities and our Christian witness apart. And finally, verse 10, aren't you glad there's only 10 today? Sure. It's kind of like, who turned the temperature up here? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor, just in case you are saying, but I don't covet his donkey. You know, James, who is the brother of Jesus, he writes the book of James in the New Testament. And for him, this is one of the commandments at the heart of the other commandments. He says, but each one, is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire, meaning I'm wanting something, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth 
to death. What he's saying is sin starts when I want something that I don't have or can't have. A woman or a man I don't have. And even if it's in my fantasy, can you see how this all connects? Or I want a lifestyle I don't have and so I need to steal. I want the things and the stuff that I don't have and so I take. Or I simply make an idol out of those things and I become greedy and in order to keep up with the nice stuff that everybody else has, I make a God out of things. So because I want stuff, that desire gets inflamed and can lead to all sorts of sin. So Stephen, are you saying that it's, it's, it's not okay for me to kind of, you know, every time I push out my car, oh, Lord, I wish I had a different car. Are you saying there's something wrong with that? And I'm not, I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. And are you saying, you know, Stephen, a mate of mine got a new car the other day and something in my heart was like, I really wish I was driving home in that car. Is there something wrong with that? And I'm saying not necessarily. Depends on where that desire is placed in your hearts. Let me tell you what God wants for you. Paul says that I have found the secret of godliness of what it means to be content in plenty and in want. That when everything is going well and I am driving home in the new car, I'm still satisfied in Jesus. And when I'm push starting my car home in the rain, I am content in Jesus. God wants us to find joy in Him and what He's given us and to trust Him. We get to be gracious people. We get to wake up every day and be people of gratitude. And that is going to make you far more happy than if this thing has an idolatrous place in your life. And even if you get it, I guarantee you that if you find the secret of contentment, you'll be happier. That's God's promise to you. Stephen, I don't believe that. Well, (laughs) this is where we need to get to the heart of who God is and what He wants for us. So I know that right now, all of us are feeling so guilty and I want to get there in a second. I want to look at the plus side of this. Can you see if Israel lived this vision out, that there would be such a nation of blessing and such a nation of wholeness, there would have been such a light to the nations around them. And if we had to live these out, Can you imagine how our families would be experiencing such wholeness, such faith, how our communities would experience such blessing? We'd be people of integrity, both in our communities and outside of our communities. We would be people that even when life goes significantly wrong, which it does, we still have a North Star, we've still got a foundation, and we still have our joy and our identity in Christ, which nothing can take away. That's what God wants for us. 
But Israel didn't get it right. In fact, in the centuries that followed, they got this wrong again and again and again to the point where God took them into exile. And listen, you and I don't get this right. I don't think an hour goes by any part of any day where I'm not breaking these commands on repeat. So what now? What do we do? Do we just give up? Well, I'm so grateful that there's someone who did get it right. That Jesus who came onto the scene, not only as the new human, but the new Israel. And he lived out all 613 commandments, including the do nots and including all the do's, including not only the external way of thinking about these commandments, but the internal heart of these commandments, including loving God above all things, putting God's kingdom first above all things, loving neighbor as one loves oneself, including loving your enemies. Jesus lived it out to the max. In your place. And every single one of your failures, he took upon himself in full on the cross. And then he took his perfect life and covered your life with it. And that is what we call the gospel. And that is why we call this the good news of the gospel. And so I want to anticipate one more objection. Okay, Stephen, I'm so grateful for Jesus. I thank Jesus for what he's done, his perfect life and what he accomplished on the cross. So I'm done. I know I'm gonna fail, so I'm not even gonna try. Remember the order, salvation first, followed by this is how you shall live. And if we truly get the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, We're going to capture the heart of what God wants for us to bear his name well, to represent him well to the world around us. For us, for you, for me to live as his treasured possession. And as I've said time and time again, this is what God wants for you, not from you. Because he knows this is the greatest place of joy and security and identity and purpose. And so we are to be transformed into the kinds of people God wants us to be. And does that start with me saying, thank you, Jesus, the end? No, because of Jesus, and because I know that I'm not gonna face the punishment of God for my sin because Jesus has already paid for it, I get to come into the presence of God and confess where I have fallen short. Jesus teaches us, you pray this every single day, forgive us our trespasses. Lord, I don't put you first. And Lord, I just see this past week, some of my concerns and love around money is, up, is, is taking the place of you in my life and I lay that down today. And God, I know that I've made an idol about work or hobbies or people. And I wanna confess that to you, knowing that I'm forgiven. And God, I know that I've not represented you well this week and borne the name of Jesus well. And I know that 
I have not always really lived up to the heart of the Sabbath and trusted you above all things and worshiped you above all things and enjoyed you above all things. And Lord, when it comes to my family and my parents, I just hang my head in my hands. And when it comes to being angry without cause, I know I've had a bad week, but I've just blown it time and time again and I'm destroying my marriage. I'm destroying my family. I'm destroying my reputation. And Lord, if someone had to see what goes on inside my mind when it comes to fantasizing about someone who's not my spouse, I'm guilty of sin. Lord, there are so many ways that I'm taking what is not mine. There are so many ways that I'm slandering others. There are so many ways that I'm desiring what I don't have and I'm not content in you. That's where it starts. Jesus, you have paid for these failures. Jesus, I have right standing with you because of your life and because you've paid for my failures and therefore I come freely into your presence to confess where I've fallen short and to repent, meaning I do a 180 on these things. And even if it means doing a 180 every single day of the rest of my life, I want to bear your name well. The prayer that I prayed this morning, knowing that you're going to say, Steve, you've had a rough week because you brought it to us today. It's got nothing to do with that. I've had a great week, actually. Thanks for asking. The prayer that I prayed this morning was, Lord, this is the kind of sermon that when you look at your preaching class is a badly constructed sermon, but I don't place my trust in that. And I know that today is going to make every single person today feel uncomfortable. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that for those who need a bit of a clap around the ears, that you, not Steve, you would give them a clap around the ears. And for those who need a gentle encouragement, that you would give a gentle encouragement. And those who just simply need a reminder about some of these things so that we can reorientate our hearts towards God, that you would be the one who does not speak to them more hardly, uh, uh, more firmly or less firmly than anyone else. That each person hears your voice the way you intend it. And I'm trusting that God has done exactly that. So I wonder what God has said to you today. Please don't ignore that. And finally, please, 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 don't just respond by saying, well, I'm going to try harder. Respond by looking at Jesus first. And knowing that in Christ, you are not guilty before God. But He wants so much for you. And He wants you to live well in this world in His name. And so for that purpose, to represent Him as our treasured possession, yes, we are going to repent Father, I pray that each one of us has experienced your voice like a surgeon with a scalpel. That each person has experienced your voice in a unique way. And so Lord, would you make loud what is you and would you make soft what is the voice of condemnation and the voice of the enemy. Would you overwhelm us 
that despite some conviction and despite our failures, would you overwhelm us with such love and worship for Jesus who lived the perfect life in our place and paid for my failures in full and who now lives with me, who lives in me, And God, so as we respond to your voice, we confess our failures and we repent before you. And just in the seconds that follow, kind of mark those thoughts as of high importance. And I want to suggest to you that you come back to those thoughts during the course of this week. And you spend some time with God. And you write down what he's calling you to. You frame your failures in light of the cross and the vision that God has for your life. That we might respond not only in the emotional moments now, but we choose to trust you and follow you. And God, where it's hard, where you're calling us to say the hard thing and to do the hard thing, give us great courage so that we can love you and love our neighbors better. We pray all of these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.